When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you're a parent, you find yourself watching kid-friendly family movies because you want to make sure that your children are watching something safe and educational. But what if that movie contains kidnapping, physical violence, and makes you dumber with each passing second? We'll find out as we attempt to prove to you that baby geniuses is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, one and all, to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. Now, there are some films out there that are, how should we say, infamous. And it's not necessarily for how good they are. And I use the good in quotation fingers. Tonight, we are talking about baby geniuses. I can't believe I just said that, but here we are. And joining me to go down this road is Alex Whistle. You know him as official AC remixer. He's been on a number of different episodes. Alex, welcome back to the show. How are you doing, man? I'm doing so good. (laughs) I'm excited for this one. So when we were talking about getting you back on the show Mm -hmm. and you're pitching movies, I ask you, what did I ever do to you to make you make me watch this film? <laughs> well, when I originally did, uh, when I suggested Monkey Bone and we did that episode, uh, I was like, man, how can I top this and really, you know, <laughs> make the experience worth remembering or I guess at this point trying to forget? <laughs> yeah. If by remembering you mean weeks of therapy afterwards, um, you're kind of in that ballpark. That being said, Monkey Bone wasn't that bad. This no. one, however, it's it's kind of infamous. <laughs> like this this did not fare well at all. <laughs> no. Yeah, it was a huge risk for me because I'm like I have a lot of great memories with this movie growing up, and then I watched it for the first time as an adult, and I went. Oh, God, it's going to be a great episode. <laughs> I was going to say, great memories or repressed memories? Because I'm starting to question if, if great means what you think it means. My whole childhood is repressed. <laughs> <laughs> and I find it funny, too, that that when we were preparing for this episode, you sent me this little video over on Facebook Messenger. And it's like, look, I'm watching it on VHS. Also, you have a working VHS player. So, could, you know, full cred for that one. Well, the one I was watching was my original copy that I got in, what was it, like 99, 2000. And I was like, it's the only thing that survived, really, that and Waterboy. <laughs> I'm starting to question your movie choices, dude. Like, like, like we family and all, but I'm starting to question your movie choices. This is, this is no longer a podcast. This is an intervention. <laughs> Yeah, I'm waiting for everybody else to just show up here. <laughs> Alex, we have to talk. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny, too. You said it's like the original VHS that you had. You know how some VHS tapes, you know, as as t- 
time goes by, if you, you know, you see those articles, if you have this VHS tape, you might actually be a millionaire. If you have this VHS tape, you might actually have bus fare, I think. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No. Not, not even. Not I got even. pocket lint. That's it. <laughs> okay. Dear listeners, we are about to go down this rabbit hole here. But before we do, but before we tackle baby geniuses, it is time to take this movie with a shake of the head and trailerize it. Once upon a time, viewers were horrified when a dancing baby appeared on Ally McBeal and made us never want to hear Hooked on a Feeling again. Now, witness the nightmare fuel that is Baby Geniuses. Two twins, separated at birth, find themselves the subject of scientific experimentation until one little monster gets loose and terrorizes everyone. With a horde of similarly shrunken superthinkers, they'll plot scheme and stymie the adults in the room, proving once and for all that age doesn't equal intellect. Coincidentally, that's also proven by voluntarily watching this film after the age of six. Watch as great actors are dragged through the diaper gravy of a script that is baby geniuses. Rated PG for preschool guerrilla warfare. I think we lost Alex on that one. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep it quiet because I'm like, I can't ruin this. It's a type of gravy of, yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the, this film has, has some things. It has yeah. some things that, that are pure nightmare fuel, but it has some things. But, <laughs> but let's go through this film. The movie stars, and I can't believe I'm actually mentioning these actors, these quality award-winning actors kathleen turner christopher lloyd peter mcnichol kim cattrall dom deloise ruby d and kyle howard the movie is directed by bob clark and if you wonder if bob clark is qualified to direct this movie let me just list some of the titles in his filmography okay because remember baby geniuses is supposed to be a kid's film he directed porky's porky's 2 Black Christmas, and I kid you not, there was a title in there that says, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. That was in his filmography. Perfect guy. Perfect guy for this one. This is actually the last film of Dom DeLuise's career that was theatrically released. So, you know, a little bit of a tear for that one because it's, it's Dom DeLuise. But who this film, on a budget of $12 million, surprisingly made bank domestically made 27 million and worldwide made 36 million when it was released on the march 12th 1999 weekend it debuted at number five with 5.6 million dollars the highest grossing debut that week was number two the rage carry to which only made seven million the Corrupter also debuted with $5.7 million, so just over Baby Geniuses at number four. The Deep End of the Ocean also debuted that weekend with $5.58 million, just under Baby Geniuses for number six. And Wing Commander debuted at number seven with $5.1 million. By the way, the number one movie that week was the second week of Analyze This, and as I'm taking a look at the movies that were released, no sh- 
analyze this held on to the number one spot. That is a piss poor week of releases. Whoo. Yeah, I was going to say that's a that's a bad time there. I mean, the Rage Carry 2, I'd have to go back and watch it, but Wing Commander? Freaking Wing Commander. I've never heard of any of these movies, so other than analyze this, and I said to myself just now, that's the only one I recognize. Well, (laughs) coincidentally, the number three movie that week, so the only other film in the top seven that wasn't a debut, was the second week of Cruel Intentions, and it was knocked down to number three by the Rage Carry 2 by a measly $59,000. So that's how close. Like... It was like an even spread for like the top seven films. But that being said, The Rage 2, 7 million. Analyze this, 15 and a half million. Still more than double the highest grossing debut film that weekend. So not a good weekend at the movies. And that trend continued at the 22nd Stinker's Bad Movie Awards. It was nominated for Worst Picture Lost to Wild Wild West. It was also nominated for Most Painfully Unfunny Comedy, Lost to Wild Wild West. I'm not going to mention one of the awards that it was nominated for because I am against the idea of children being nominated for a bad acting award. We're just not even going to mention it, okay? Because it's not cool. It's not cool. And the Razzies, I think, were right in getting rid of kids being nominated for bad acting awards so we're not even going to bring that up because they're kids they're freaking kids right yeah now bob clark not a kid he won for worst director and the movie won for least special effects i'm i'm gonna put this out there wild wild west wasn't that bad it wasn't like this movie Way worse than Wild Wild West. <laughs> and the critics agree with me. Over at Metacritic, this film has a Metascore of six. Just six. Single digits. And over at Rotten Tomatoes, the audience score is 25% and the tomatometer, two. <laughs> two percent so i ask again what the hell did i do to you to make you make me watch this film (laughs) i'm so sorry (laughs) you're not sorry you're freaking loving this but here's the thing here's the thing i want to put this movie into perspective here we know that super babies baby geniuses 2 or super geniuses or whatever the hell they're calling it (laughs) has a zero percent tomatometer but as i was doing the research i discovered there's more there are five baby genius films five the hell (laughs) so for the record three four and five do not have an official tomatometer but the audience score, so let's put this into perspective with the audience score. So Baby Genius is one, a 25% audience score. Baby Genius is two, a 24%. Here's where it gets really interesting. Baby Genius is three, Baby Squad Investigators has a 36% audience score. Ooh, come on, Peak. Baby Geniuses and the Treasures of Egypt. And yes, I actually said that. audience score 
And this is where I question the movie-going audience. Baby geniuses and the space baby, 60% audience score. (laughs) (laughs) They jumped the shark and they literally did baby geniuses in space. Like, (laughs) I, I get a sequel. You know, it made money, the box office. I get a sequel. Five? I didn't even know there was five. I only thought there was two, so that's great. (laughs) I mean, to give you an idea, the sequel stars John Voight and Scott Baio. That's all you need to know. That's it. That's it. And if memory serves, John Voight is in the other three as well. So, yeah. Yeah, we've already had enough of John Voight on this show because we did Anaconda, and yeah. But let's get <laughs> to the breakdown of this film. We start with the always lovely Kathleen Turner, who plays Dr. Elena Kinder. Get it, Kinder? They're babies. Um, that, that, that's the level of meta we're dealing with with this script here. But how was Dr. Elena Kinder for you? Uh, you know, I really love that uh, that actress. And uh, that was one of the things I first thought of when rewatching this movie. I went, wow, how did this big name get in such a stinker of a movie, you know? <laughs> um, I think the character is way over the top for what the movie should be. She's very much like, you'll never stop my evil plan. And, you know, stuff happens to her and it's just like am I, am I watching the Looney Tunes like I guess it's supposed to be a kids movie but like damn <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean there's the thing we have to recognize and you know if you're watching this if, if you're looking for um Mensa level cinematic storytelling you pick the wrong VHS tape but if you're looking for a family fun adventure the film does do its best to try to provide and i think kathleen turner understood exactly who this film was for and that's okay right so of course she's going to play it up right it's almost like a you know a disney channel show type villain and that's okay for the audience that's going to be watching this like you know kathleen turner you're right she is absolutely wonderful i mean a we're talking about the voice of Jessica Rabbit, you know? So, mm-hmm. yeah, we're talking about War of the Roses. We're talking about Romancing the Stone. We're we're talking some good quality acting. Oh, yeah. It's a kid's film. It's a family kid's film for when parents want to stop watching cartoons. So, of course, she's going to play it up to that level. And I think she kind of hits it there. <laughs> no, I totally agree. Uh, it looking back it's uh i think that she is one of the standout characters of the movie because of how well she played that part yeah she understood that stage villain is the way to go when it comes to a family adventure even if you think about steve martin i'm I'm glad you mentioned looney tunes because if you go back to looney tunes back in action steve martin was perfect for that in that he was very much the stage villain kathleen turner channeled that you know kids play like a family adventure stage play meant for a younger audience right Mm -hmm. 
smart acting on her part. You know, what yeah. she understood the assignment. I can't believe I'm saying this. Christopher Lloyd as heap. <laughs> I mean, a paycheck's a paycheck, but how was Christopher Lloyd for you? I think casting Christopher Lloyd in that small of a role was both great and a huge mistake. Like, it's Christopher Lloyd, you know? Like, obviously, I know him best for the Back to the Future movies, being the main character, the drive of those movies. So to see him be on the poster, the promos, even the movie, like the actual box of the movie, he's barely in the movie. Yeah, it's it's interesting. When you have an actor of that quality, right, and that caliber, and that name recognition. Like, let's be honest, you know, it's 1999. Christopher Lloyd is still absolutely name recognition. Yeah. And I think the role, I mean, he approached the role, I think, very well in that he didn't try to match Kathleen Turner's bigness in the role, for lack of a better term. He was yeah. subtle. He was evil. But, and again, in a kid-friendly kind of way. Like, it was very, very selective in when he used his emotion and the way he would like just stare at the babies and trying to analyze them like like it was a smart way in that he played well off of kathleen turner mm-hmm. me especially when um there's this scene where they're in the lab and he's pacing the room and the main baby sly is also imitating and they lock eyes and Christopher Lloyd, all he had to do was snap his fingers and those kids knew that he meant business. So when you say that he played evil, like that is, yeah, he he was that evil villain. Yeah. I mean, here's clearly a doctor who has been playing mind games with these kids since they were born. And keep in mind, in the film, they're supposed to be about two years old. So it's, you know... That's how long they've, they've been continuously and constantly under surveillance and scrutinized and analyzed, you know, eight ways from Sunday. So, yes, this is this. Uh, it's a power position for Heap. And again, the fact that he does it in a very screen villain, you know, if Kathleen Turner is the stage villain, Christopher Lloyd is definitely the screen villain. Everything is in nuance and subtlety as opposed to grandioseness and, and you know. In your faceness. Very much so. Yeah. Like, she's, Kathleen Turner was projecting to the back of the theater, whereas Christopher Lloyd was bringing you into the screen. And that's, yeah. you get you very different villains. And, but that's so much better than when you had a movie like Batman Forever and you had Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones trying yeah. to both out decibel meter each other. Yeah, that I, I definitely agree there. I like I like that analogy, that comparison, because yeah, they Kathleen Turner and Christopher Lloyd are just those characters, the way that they play it is just the perfect marriage of how you basically want that evil duo to be like you know so i mean the other thing too is that had christopher lloyd gone stage presence if you will you know had he gone a little on the crazy side one would instantly draw the comparisons to doc brown from back to the future and i think this was a conscious decision in order to avoid those kind of comparisons because here we got another lab coat you know weirdo 
who's you know doing scientific experimentation, one could easily draw the parallel. But I think this performance distinctly puts a line in the sand between the two characters. Absolutely. Peter McNichol, who played Dan Bobbins. Now, I need to point this out because in the trailer rise, we kind of had a little bit of fun with this in that on the show, Ally McBeal, there was this whole the dancing baby thing. And that was you know supposed to signify that Ally McBeal's you know, internal you know clock is ticking. Right. And they start dancing. <laughs> Peter McNichol was in that show. He should know better <laughs> than to deal with crazy animated babies. But yeah, here he is again. But how was he as Dan Bobbins for you? You know, I I think that he played the good guy a little too softly. It didn't build up for me until near the end when, you know, he started realizing like, wow, I can really understand these kids and being like the, the good guy hero type. Because prior to that, he was very much a soft-spoken, you know, I'm just a little guy. You know, these guys are way power, more powerful than me. I'm going to let them do their thing, even if it means they steal my work. But, you know, I, th- I think he played the character well. Just those points. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because, yes, the and by the way, this, this film was put out in 1999. And trust me when I say I'm not even going to say spoilers like a mofo, because if you're if you're listening to this episode and you're choosing not to watch the film, you're welcome. We've just performed a public service. But the th- I think the thing here is that when I think about the character of Dan Bobbins, he's not the scientist, right? He just happens to have an innate ability to understand the kids eventually at some point. So it's almost the direct opposite of Jeff Goldblum and Cats and Dogs, which, again, another family-friendly film. Jeff Goldblum's yeah. whole research is about... Um, is all related to dogs and understanding them and trying to not necessarily communicate with them, but you know, all his research surrounds dogs and everything about dogs here. He's not the scientist. He is the husband of the girl who is the niece of Dr. Kinder. And they're just running a daycare. I assume because at some point it feels like they're just trying to bring in more kids to make money. And it just seems some weird, you know, sketchy kind of, take advantage of the loophole situation but i guess it's a daycare um (laughs) i guess but the thing is though it makes sense that he's dialed back a bit because of course you know his wife is the niece the niece of dr kinder so of course he's not going to want to upset the apple car because i guess they're getting some money from from this uh baby co type company like it makes sense that he doesn't want to upset that apple cart. He, he wants that assistance. He wants those funds. So in order to be able to provide for his family and keep the daycare open, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. But if the whole premise of analyzing these kids is to understand their thought processes and, and use that malleable mind to, I don't know. It's never really understood beyond let's analyze kids and see if they're super geniuses uh aside from karate experts apparently and didn't know when that was part of it but regardless here we are and yet here he is dan bobbins and has the ability to understand the kids you would think 
that might be more interesting. Let's dissect Dan. How can he understand the kids? That seems like the smarter research. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that. Um, one of the um, one of the dialogues at some point in the movie, he's trying to talk to, uh, I guess, his uh, employees, the other people that also sort of work in that house. And he's like, you know, it just feels like a language that I used to speak. And I'm slowly remembering what that language was and decoding it myself rather than, you know, uh, Kathleen Turner's character using computers and technology to decode. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I'd love to know what, what's, really going on within like what's his backstory how did he get how are they there you know how did they get there so yeah i mean <laughs> yes dan and robin adopted because you know they they had a kid or they were trying to have a kid they didn't think they could have a kid they adopted you know this is where i guess elena kind of came in and said you know here we'll, we'll set this up here you can you can adopt this kid of course they took the twin so they could run their experiment and all of a sudden they could have a kid. So now all of a sudden they're thinking more kids, the whole works. So I, I get it, but there's just so many missing potentials here. And I think I'm going to be saying that a lot about this film potential. Mm -hmm. There is, yeah. there is potential here, but I think it was lost in some of the execution of it, but we'll get to that in a bit. Kim Cattrall, who of course played Robin, Dan's wife, a, it's Kim Cattrall in a, a very, you know, family-friendly role in the middle of her Sex in the City run. But how was Kim Cattrall for you? Uh, I, I no, I think she played her character spot on. She was she was one of the few that were definitely spot on. Rewatching the movie, uh, I made that connection. I'm like, hey, she's in Sex in the City, um, and. I just didn't know that it was also like within the same time. So th that's a really interesting fact for me to find out. Um, but no, she's the strong um, opinionated. Well, I don't want to say opinionated, but like she, her opinion is like uh, a really good one. So she fights for to, to prove like what she has to say is true. Like she always had like a really bad feeling about her aunt and, Come to find out it wasn't really her aunt, you know. So, you know, seeing seeing that like um strong female uh lead is really good, especially like in the nineties, where you know, anytime that you would see a, a strong female lead, it would be in a rom com or something like that, you know, there wasn't too too many. So it was it was nice. I mean, you were getting some decent strong female lead movies around that time. The first one that comes to mind is The Relic with Penelope Ann Miller. I thought that was mm. you know, wonderful. And we've already covered that movie on this show. So, you know, go back and listen to that episode. The thing, the thing with Kim Cattrall here is that she would not have been my first choice to take that role, but I think it was a good role for her. And you're right. I like the idea that she had, you know, she had a bad feeling about this. She went full Han Solo on this and how Elena kind of gives her the skeevies a little bit. But <laughs> but that being said, she's it also puts her in a position that this is her aunt. 
that is helping provide for them and giving them the ability to run this daycare and doing a lot for them from behind the scenes. So you're there and you accept the help, but you're not exactly happy that you're accepting the help because you're breaking out in hives every time you're around her. So it's there and it's set up. So the payoff at the end of the film, and I'm not going to tell you what happens at the end of the film, but the payoff at the end of the film actually works for Kim Cattrall in this. Mm -hmm. People are now sitting there going, well, now I have to watch the damn film. Thanks, Jay. (laughs) Hey, I had to watch it, so you got to watch it too, dear listeners. I I agree. I I feel like I'm I'm sharing the pain in this one here. But (laughs) it is interesting, though. Like, 1999, right? We're already a year into Sex in the City, and I recognize that it takes a while to get these movies out. And in fairness, this movie did get pushed back quite a bit because there was a lot that went into making the babies, quote unquote, talk. Because, yes, they had babies that were filmed there, but then they used computer graphics in order to be able to move the mouth. So rather than a movie like Look Who's Talking where the kid would just look towards the camera and then all of a sudden you hear Bruce Willis's voice but there's no lip movement here. They made it look like they were actually talking. So I'm going to ask you this before we move on to some of the smaller characters, the CGI work in that, what they did to make it look like these kids were talking to each other, mm-hmm. effective or creepy AF. Um, It was a bit of both for me. So I ended up, doing uh, a little bit of like Googling about the movie and found out that it was one of the first movies to ever really um, use that. Cause like you mentioned with look who's talking, it was uh, voiceovers. Uh, so I think that's really interesting. And what I think is also a really cool or a neat connection. If you do have it on tape and you're watching the commercials before the movie starts, they're promoting Stuart Little, which also was one of the first ever movies to feature an animated um, rodent, uh, full functional uh, animatronics and CGI clothing. So to have a lot of these firsts surrounding this one movie and just see how its effect, uh, like its effect on the future of CGI and sort of like those cool visual effects. It's really neat to see where it kind of all started. It is creepy when you, at some points in the movie, you can definitely tell when the baby was already moving its face naturally. And then the lips were kind of added as well versus a baby that's perfectly still and they're trying to use the visual effects to sort of because you could see the lips weren't doing this they were doing this instead uh so i had a good chuckle seeing that (laughs) i mean given the the audience that this is for and let's be honest parents are putting this on and then you know closing their eyes while their kid has a has a bottle or something like that like I, i i get it i i understand the purpose of this film um but it it is an advancement in cinema technology and i think it worked well in a in a movie like cats and dogs where they did their best to to make the animals mouths move so it looked it didn't look like an episode of hemi hamster uh which also i just mentioned hemi hamster so that just tells you exactly how old i am but that being said you know i i think when it comes to moving animal mouths it's kind of cute 
um, when it comes to creepy, weird psycho babies that have that are able to talk and you're you're able to lip read, a little weird. And I don't think people were ready for it. And that's one of the big criticisms of this film is that the babies act too old for their supposed age in the film. And it, it pulls you out of the story a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I was going to ask you this question because I, I feel like if anybody knows the answer, it's going to be you. What was the hype behind baby talking baby movies in this time like it's just i i notice you have look who's talking and it's slew of sequels now i know that baby genius is has a slew of sequels yeah you know it's like why (laughs) where i I, why (laughs) i mean the thing with look who's talking to um it was cute and quaint at least the first one because mm-hmm. you know you had this baby and you everyone has these moments where they look at their kid or they they look at a dog or their or a cat or whatever their pet is right and they find themselves talking to them and you know whether it be out of loneliness or just trying to ground themselves in reality hey we just got out of the pandemic so i'm sure that happened a few times but that being said like Every parent has those moments where they're they're sitting down with their little one and they're 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 having a little heart to heart kind of thing and you know even if the kid is just looking at them they feel that kind of connection and I kind of understand that and when you watch little kids play together in a playground you know even if they're not you know full language at that point they still have a way to communicate with each other so that kind of makes sense but also to the same token as well, with a movie like Look Who's Talking, they don't understand the kid. The kid is just a random voiceover, and you can have a lot of fun with that, as Bruce Willis did as the voice of Mikey. Uh, and then yeah. John Travolta and Kirstie Alley were just kind of doing their thing, and Mikey was just like, I'm here for the show, dude. I'm here for the show and the paycheck. Um, but here, they're observing kids because there's this whole idea that you know, young children's minds are so malleable that they're able to come up with ideas and thought processes and solutions to problems that people who are a little bit older and their minds aren't as flexible aren't aren't able to come up with. And mm-hmm. there's a fascinating storyline in that very concept alone. But I think this movie got bogged down with the slapsticky humor as opposed to solidifying the plot and the reasons why Dr. Kinder and Heap are studying these children because that whole process gets lost while the kids are off disco dancing and doing whatever the hell they're doing. That right there is one of the best examples that you could give about the potential of this movie, right? You have a fantastic idea of, you know, like about these kids communicating and whatnot. And then and the, and for this movie specifically, some of them have, you know, super talents like karate and puzzle solving and whatnot. Like it, it would be cool to see a, a not so kid friendly version of of this, you know? Well, I mean, you take a movie like Strays that was out in theaters last year and, you know, you have characters like the narrator dog who were sitting there and, you know, clearly evil in their mind um yet they're still a cute dog so that kind of makes sense and i mean like it's a movie trope 
you know, like the the dad who's trying to get their act together and just try to do the right thing for their family. And they're, they're, they're sitting down in the kid's room and telling all their woes to this kid who's not going to respond because they're a little kid. And then someone's like watching from the door or listening from the hall kind of thing and having the tear moment. And I can name you a million movies like that. Jersey Girl. Like, seriously. Like, you have those moments, right? But here, it's the uh, it's the thought that these kids actually do have high intellectual or at least malleable thought processes that they're trying to tap into, but it never really goes beyond understanding or trying to understand how they communicate with each other rather than put them in some kind of Vulcan thought workshop or sweatshop for lack of a better term and put these complex problems in front of them to see if you get the whole infinite monkeys solution where you know put them in front of typewriters and eventually you get shakespeare we -hmm. don't have that here and you could and would have made it make sense a little bit more instead it's just a you know kids rule the world kind of (laughs) comedy which is okay in itself but you know streamline it one way or the other you can't walk down the middle of the road no dom deloise who's an absolute gem as lenny the handyman around the daycare how was he for you uh i really love that character Uh, it's so funny i didn't at the time i didn't know who he was and then once I was doing a little bit of research after watching it for this. Uh, I saw who he was. I saw his slew of filmography, and I'm just like, "Wow! Like this is this is insane." He, uh, I love his character. It's almost giving me the same connection I had when watching Hagrid. You know, you got this big bearded guy. He's lovable. He knows how to interact with with these kids. Uh, he also has a bit of that like slapstick esque uh, delivery to his character, which I really like because they also have that slapstick ish, like three stooges moment with Sly. And I'm like, was it good? Not as good as Lenny, you know? So, <laughs> Cause like, you know, yeah, it, it's just watching um, almost like a master go at work. You know, he, he had really good delivery and uh, yeah. I think Hagrid is, maybe the perfect analogy for Dom DeLuise's character in this, because you know, he Hagrid looked after Harry and Hermione and Ron and all the kids at Hogwarts in a way that he was still there to do a job. He wasn't necessarily, you know, a teacher, but he was there to help look after Hogwarts and the kids in a very gentle giant kind of manner here. Lenny kind of does the same thing. He's the handyman around the house. He's the one who drives the bus, which by the way, it needs to be pointed out. This is this is like a preschool daycare, at least the way it's played out. Mm-hmm. They have a school bus. None of these yeah. kids have seatbelts. <laughs> Lenny is endangering every single child in that daycare. I, I listen. I'll be. I gotta be fair here. When I was in preschool in daycare. Uh, there was also a school bus, and this was in the 90s as well. So no seatbelts there. So I think it was just a common thing for the time, maybe. I don't know. I'm, I'm starting to think that that 
the things we went through as kids, um, if you go back and look there and say, by all rights, I shouldn't be alive with the that was pulled off when we were kids and yet we're still here. So I guess it's okay. But the fact that Lenny's mere presence at the daycare and the way he interacts with the kids and the way he interacts with Robin and Dan, it creates a very family friendly atmosphere for this daycare. And I think Lenny's the perfect guy for that. And Dom DeLuise is just pristine casting for it because you're right. He has that Robbie Coltrane warmth to him in this role. He was necessary. He was absolutely necessary. I just wish you had more moments with Lenny playing with the kids and the kids talking to him, but him not understanding them. So that would, in essence, A, emphasize that the kids are smart and they talk to each other and they have their own language, but B, it makes Dan's ability to understand the children even more effective because Lenny, who's there with them all the time, can't understand them. Yeah. Ruby D, who played Margot, the housekeeper, sass for days. What did you think? I love that character. It's so uh, it's so funny. When I finished watching a movie and I was going through and then I clicked on Ruby D's uh, Wikipedia page, I believe it was a picture of them younger and i went is it that lady from star trek (laughs) no it's not michelle nichols (laughs) (laughs) yeah i quickly found that out but uh, no i love the um, the quick humor of that character the snapbacks uh with with dickie blanking dickie that's his name i was like i know it's ice pick at some point but anyways but just it's that banter that I have now with, you know, grandparents and stuff like that. And, or like, even with parents that are like, not necessarily roasting you, but you kind of have that, that banter and it's, it's still friendly, even though it kind of stings for that specific person. And, you know, the, the look on Dickie's face when he gets a snap back at them and how proud he is that he like, he got her like speechless, you know, it's perfect. (laughs) Okay, before I give you my thought process on Ruby D, we need need, need to jump ahead a little bit here and talk about Kyle Howard, who played Dickie slash Ice Pick. And I'm going to need a Snickers bar after this, so bear with me here. Okay. Who the f*** is this kid? Where does he come from? Whose kid is he? Was he a kid that was just left at the daycare and grew up there because his parents didn't want him anymore? Who is he? Why is he there? Uh, the character of Dickie? Yes. Because he, he, he works there. He's, he, what does he do? He shows, I don't know. he shows up like cosplaying every single, you know, type of kid you find in high school in 1999. And that seems to be his entire raison debt. Who hires this kid? I listen. I I so watching this movie now, <laughs> I can like I I love watching these older movies that I used to watch because I now hear things that I didn't quite understand before or I'll, that I didn't notice before. But with Dicky, you you find out that he's basically being all these characters in order to get himself fired and rebel against the authority figures in that workplace 
but they don't want to fire him because he's so good with the kids. You just don't see what he does with these kids. But, but that's so the I, thing. We don't see him interact with the kids at all. At all. Like, we see Lenny interact with the kids. We see Ruby D as Margot interact with the kids. We see Dan and Robin interact with the kids. The f*** does Dickie do? <laughs> I think his sole purpose in that house is to just say sarcastic comments in moments like a, uh, when they're all together as a family goes oh what a kodak moment you know it's like is that why you're here is, is that what you're here for like i i fully get that some characters are there specifically for comedic relief but the problem is dicky so, serves zero zero purpose in the grand scheme of things and the problem is all the good lines that Margot has in this film are related to smacking Dickie down if Dickie's not there then Margot's shouldn't has nothing else to do get rid of Dickie because he ain't doing shit. and again I, I don't mean this to to, to diss on Kyle Howard because you know, he's working with the script he's given here. So understand I'm not picking on him, the actor. I'm picking on the role here. But the fact that he doesn't do a damn thing except for get in the way and get hypnotized by some two-year-old because apparently he's that weak-minded. Like, like you know, he ain't no Jabba. He ain't no Jabba. The thing is, though, if you get rid of Dickie, then while Lenny's trying to take care of the kids in the daycare margo can be there to help out and also try to you know take care of lenny in a very you know non-married yet very strong friendship kind of relationship and again creates the family atmosphere around the daycare dicky distracts margo from everything else that's going on margo could have been more effective had we not had this extra character not doing anything no, I, I totally agree, and I I didn't Google this, but I wonder if there's a DVD copy of this movie with like deleted scenes to help sort of mesh that character and just sort of see him developing that maybe just got cut from the movie. But I don't know. <laughs> uh, if you're gonna cut his, you know, the 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 meat of his character, then just cut the damn character straight up. It reminds me of, and this is, I'm going to bring up a comic gem, like a, like a pure, you know, bastion of great comedy with a role that I just would you know, hit the eject button on. The movie Airplane. We all okay. agree that Airplane is a phenomenal film. Funny mm-hmm. as hell. Steve Stucker in this movie as the air traffic controller who's making all the the funny quips and whatnot and being really really out there he's not needed he's not funny because he's so it's almost like he's breaking the fourth wall and while everyone else is taking this very seriously he's you know doing almost like vaudeville style kind of bad comedy and it feels forced and shoehorned dicky in this movie feels forced and shoehorned into the script to create another level of comedy that again takes away from the actual plot of the film 
right? If if he was a you know, I I, I can't even I can't even with Dicky. No. I'm sorry, I I can't <laughs> get rid of this character, and the movie is infinitely better. Because then Absolutely. Margot can be redirected to create a, a, a bigger family atmosphere with the daycare. Mm-hmm. I think that the character of Dicky is probably just in there as much as he is, or in this case as little, um, is probably just to make like a certain age demographic sort of chuckle and also relate to this younger audience, or like a, a movie aimed for an, a younger audience. So in a way, I can see where the idea could have been well execution. But no, I totally agree with you. Cut him out. He's not in there enough. And it's just creating an uh, an awkward filled like space, essentially. Like, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, I get, and I've said it before, I, I get it that this is a, you know, it's a kid film. It's a family-friendly film. It's something that... You, know, you can bring the kids to the theater if you want, just want to get out of the house and go to the theater as a parent. Like, this is the perfect kind of film that, you know, you think about those um, afternoon showings that are, you know, lighter on, you know, sensory overload for the kids. So the lights are on so parents can, you know, like make sure that the, the kids are taken care of and the volume's lower so the kids aren't screaming because it's too loud. Like those kind of, you know, movies for mommies kind of things like this is that kind of film and yet we're watching it for our podcast what have you done what have you done alex what have you done but it's not without its horrific things this film has some nightmare fuel in this (laughs) two words dear sir and i'm just going to turn the mic over to you on this one uh baby bunting (laughs) <laughs> you want to know something funny when i first watched this movie and this always stuck with me is for an animatronic baby why did the voice sound like darth vader <laughs> right <laughs> you know? ba- baby bunting should be doing the trailer rise for this podcast <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah oh actually i have a really Fun fact about the first appearance of that animatronic in the movie. If you look carefully in the control room, one of the controllers is none other than country superstar legend Randy Travis. Yeah, I I got my issues with Randy (laughs) Travis about this movie, but go ahead. (laughs) So when I saw that, I was like, wow, he's the he's like the first appearance of this animatronic. And then they took him out for the rest of the movie. This animatronic and and some of the other animatronics like I get right like they're they're animals and they're cute and they're cuddly. Baby Bunting is a horrific nightmare, gigantic baby with a with the face of a freaking Italian mob boss. <laughs> and you're right, walking around like happy to meet you, like da. All the all the um human animatronics in this movie especially during the action scene where they all come to life they're the santa claus the elf and all that stuff nightmare fuel right nightmare fuel like this is 
I can't even begin. It, it's it's they're literally caricatures pulled out of someone's nightmare, slapped onto a robot, like and set loose on people. It feels like they snuck the cameras in after Doctor Who finished doing their Christmas special and said, let's take all the villains and monsters and put a bunch of babies in there too. <laughs> yeah, right? Because that, that's what kind of feels like. That's the kind of horrific that you would see in the Doctor Who Christmas special. Also, I love the Doctor Who Christmas special, but still, like, and the thing is, there's no rhyme or reason why these horrifying like chucky is sitting there going that's an ugly goddamn baby seriously like yeah if it was if these animatronics were used to induce reactions by the baby so they could monitor brain patterns then then you have a reason to have this gigantic walking rob zombie stage prop I'd love to see that, by the way, live. Oh, dear God, dear Rob Zombie, please find baby Bunting and have him on stage with you. You will terrify your entire audience. <laughs> That's so metal. <laughs> but still, but still, like, again, you have the pieces in place in order to be able to make this whole concept of studying children in their most malleable mental states in order to to understand their brain patterns and figure out how to enhance maybe adult thinking patterns again the the pieces are there the pieces are there but instead you got some three stooges disco dancing karate babies running around and taking away from a plot that could actually work yeah i can't believe that sentence actually came out of my mouth but here we are the other thing too is that when Sly finally escapes and gets to the mall, right? Also, first of all, yeah, let's put a baby in 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 uh, an alleyway and and taken by homeless people because that's good family friendly entertainment. But still, I have issues with this movie. Um, but that being said, you get a little bit of that fish out of water moment, right? You get the whole like I'm going to play video games and and it feels like a home alone getting stuck in the mall, which again would work well if you played up on it. Again, there are pieces there that if you just take away some of the the slapstick and tie things together and get rid of Dicky because I'm still not over that. Um, there is there are pieces here that can work. They can. But they don't. But they can work. They can. But but as you're watching this now, and as we're talking about this and flushing this out, I get that there are five Baby Geniuses movies out there. If a, a property like this were to be picked up by like a Disney or something like that, and or or a company like a Tubi, right, that's mm-hmm. looking for a property to kind of you know, throw to their their family audiences because families are going to be leaning on fast networks because, hey, guess what? It's free, right? All you need yeah. is the internet. Can a property like this reworked work today given today's technology if the storyline is streamlined? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think 
I think because of its original time and it being, you know, the first of its kind and the technology still being new versus nowadays where, you know, 99% of our movies are, or at least the action ones are, you know, CGI. Look at Avengers and all like the Marvel stuff. There's so much CGI there uh, that it's, it'll be easier to work with. There's a lot, especially nowadays, there's a lot of, um younger actors who look or younger they look younger than what they actually are so it's a lot easier for those types of people to um enhance the roles because if you watch the original baby geniuses especially during like the disco uh, scene specifically i'll talk about that one um i saw a behind the scenes video which i couldn't find again where uh, it was uh, a little person that was dancing and they CGI'd the baby's face onto the body. So if you rewatch the movie, you can actually see that it's two different graphics. You could tell that this has been added on after. So I think nowadays where you have, like I said, the actors who look a lot younger, they could do these action scenes and it not look so bad or... Um, just like how we were talking, how there's a lot of potential with the plot and stuff. I think now that they know what the plot is supposed to be, get rid of Dicky, and you got yourself a good movie nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> just Dicky, just keep Dicky. That's it. Yeah, super Dicky. <laughs> the other thing though is that I don't know if you want to go down an animated road with this because. The boss baby exists and the boss baby kind of leans into some of the things that could have worked with this film. You know, you have, again, super intelligent babies who are doing things that and the parents just don't understand. Boss baby, I think, is the better baby geniuses kind of film. And I don't know if you could do a baby geniuses now because boss baby exists. Uh, I I can see your point. That animation studio, I, I don't want to say it's illumination, but like illumination sort of style, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, have done such a fantastic job within that sort of animation style. You know, it, they they look like passable humans, and they don't look too overly cartoony. Mm-hmm. Like it's not Looney Tunes sort of thing, right? Um, so. I, I totally understand what you mean by boss baby is definitely the better kind. Uh, I agree. <laughs> you know, and you know, I, I say this as a father, right. Who has kids who watch the boss baby, you know, in short doses in the Netflix series, in short doses, boss baby is actually better than the movie, especially the second movie. Um, I think if you took baby geniuses into a, you know, short 10 episode type season, in small doses, again, it could work. And even there, there's room for a character like Dickie because you have the space to flush out a purpose for Dickie. Which I can't believe I just said that, but here we are. Um, the thing is, and again, it's not, it's, I've been harping on this character far too much. It should be known. Kyle Howard, you, you did a good job with what you had as far as the script goes. The script didn't do you any favors. That that's that's just it. Did you feel this, this, I, I had to point this out and I'm putting my notes because at the time it felt a little. It took a while to get here. 
this is an hour and a half film. And it wasn't until 45 minutes till we had the switch. Did that feel too long to you or was it the right time for it? Um, I felt like the entire flow of the movie and how it progressed was a little bit all over the place. So seeing that the real meat only came like more closer to the end of the movie than, you know, more middle-ish. Uh, no, it definitely felt, uh, felt wrong. <laughs> you know, like he spent so much time showing us, in my opinion, useless little tidbits. And then you're slapping us right in the middle of the action. It's like, okay, how did we get here? Just like you mentioned earlier, where did they get to learn all this Kung Fu? Right. Where did they get to learn like all these, like not just Kung Fu, but like self-defense. How do they know how to like communicate into sort of like this war path pattern? Like how do you plan this stuff? Where, where's that montage? And how is a two year old (laughs) going to overpower a security guard? <laughs> yeah, I seen that right at the beginning. There, it killed me. But also, and and again, I'm going to point this out here with you know with our baby bunting nightmare fuel. When Sly at the end takes control of baby bunting and uses it to attack the security guards and whatnot, he hops on the mic and he starts talking. But I thought people couldn't understand what the hell he was saying. So how the hell is he making sense talking through baby bunting, like? Did you forget the plot of the movie? (laughs) Director not so geniuses. Right? Writers not so. Also, children shouldn't play with dead things, and Biggie Bunting is clearly a dead thing. So, Sly, stop playing with the dead thing. (laughs) It could have been worse. Could have been a giant robo dicky. Also, giant robo dicky name your sex tape. Okay, but, but, I think we broke Alex here. Because I, I'm just paying you back for making me, you know, making me watch this film. So, but it's come time. It's come time. And I know that this, this podcast is called It's Not That Bad. Before we get to our MVPs, it should be pointed out that our basis for this show is to sit there and say going by the critic score on Rotten Tomatoes is the film that bad so Alex before we get to our MVPs this film is sitting with a 2% tomatometer this is some low hanging fruit here absolutely is this film better than the 2% critic score that it has absolutely (laughs) absolutely why (laughs) <laughs> uh because a dicky no um <laughs> no on, honestly it's it's meant to be a kid's movie and looking back knowing that i saw this as a kid i was entertained the whole way as a kid you're not understanding what we're going what we understand now looking back at the movie so i think as a child you see something slapstick comedy you're gonna laugh you hear uh, a useless character being picked on you're gonna laugh 
uh, you have senseless action that makes no sense, you're going to be entertained. And it did its job. I just think that it was maybe targeted to the wrong audience because I saw the trailer for the movie and it looked like something that, you know, uh, a 14 to 20 year old would probably watch. Sure, it's their babies, but the way that it came off as it's going to be some sort of action comedy and it was essentially made for, you know, a six, seven year old, maybe nine. So I don't think the movie's uh, deserving of a two. Yeah, and and this kind of falls into the category of movies that critics should just walk away from. Like you you don't have to criticize every film. You don't need to give every film a rating. This film is not made for, you know, then tra- I don't want to say the traditional movie going public, but it's it's not going to go out there trying to convey that it's has some deep meaningful profound story. It's baby geniuses, right? It's yeah. it's there for a job. It does the job. And for that, it's definitely higher than a 2%. So yes. it's not that bad. You said the name of the podcast. I did. I did. <laughs> roll the credits. Roll the credits. But before we roll the credits, it's time. So Alex, who is your MVP of baby geniuses? Oh, man. If you say Dickie, I'm out. <laughs> now, I'm going to say Heath just because even now, they, even now when I think of that movie, Heath is, even though he has a minimal appearance in the movie, is definitely a standout character because of how well it was portrayed and just all in all the performance was amazing. You know what's funny? As, as we were talking about one of the characters in this film, um, I had... Peter McNichol written down. And I think part of the reason why I have Peter McNichol written down is that every now and then an actor does a role and the minute they come up in any other role, you instantly hear that character. I love the Harvey Birdman attorney at law animated series. And Peter McNichol is the voice of X the Eliminator in that Okay. And I cannot, I can't not hear X the Eliminator whenever he spoke, but I still liked him in this. But as we were talking, I'm, I realized that Kim Cattrall really did bring it for this film. And the fact that she had her, her comeuppance moment against Elena in this, again, you're going to have to watch this, dear listeners. I can't save you from everything. Um, but she had a very good arc in this film. And even the fact that even if she couldn't understand the kids, she was still supportive of Dan and went with whatever Dan said, right? Uh, when she sank the phone from him and, and basically did the bomb threat against the, the, the baby coat place in order yeah. to get cops there, that's that take charge moment. Kim Cattrall, despite the role that she was playing on TV at the time, was able to turn around and give a very good family performance in this film kim cattrall gets my mvp alex thank you so much for actually i was gonna say thank you for making me watch this film but no no i can't go that far (laughs) i can't go that far but thank you for joining me 
in dissecting this film. Before we go, please let our audience know uh, what you're up to and where they can find you out there on the interwebs. Uh, currently, I am celebrating my one-year anniversary in photography. Um, so if you want to check me out, especially if you're in Ottawa and you have an event that you would like pictures being taken, uh, <laughs> uh, it is Photographs by AC uh, on Instagram. And uh, I'm doing a giveaway for a free shoot. Uh, whether it's a private shoot, like uh, a portrait or uh, an event that you are hosting or being a part of that you want pictures uh, to be taken at, I am giving that away. And uh, for music stuff, I am at AC official music page on YouTube and currently working on, well, I guess it's not really a, too much of a secret, but I'm just, I just started working on an Elton John remix that is completely out of left field for me because it's an earlier career song of his. And uh, it's very, it's the process has been pretty interesting so far. Excellent. And uh, that's it for me. <laughs> that's awesome. By the way, I should remind you that Elton John has over 30 albums. So if we ever do go down that road, pack a lunch, stay for the day. We're going to be there for a while over on there can only be one. But two-parter you, episode. Quite possibly. It might be the first two-parter that we have to do. So if we do that, I'm kind of down for that. But thank you. And to you, our listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of It's Not That Bad. Now, you guys know the drill. If there is a movie out there that you think is unfairly maligned or is just so bad that there is no way in baby bunting that we can find anything good to say about it, hit us up on social media at NotThatBadCast or go to our website at NotThatBadCast.com. And while you're there, make sure you check out all of our shows, including the brand new Spin Shuffle Skip over on the There Can Only Be One channel. Until next next time he's alex i'm jay you guys are awesome this is it's not that bad a proud member of the pantheon podcast network take care It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.